Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Simon Hughes and welcome to a special edition of The Analyst Inside Cricket. Today we're interviewing Mike Brearley, the double Ashes winning captain. Of course he won the Ashes both home and away. Not many people have done that. He was my old county captain as well and he's written a new book, On Form, which is a sort of sequel to his classic, The Art of Captaincy. And I'm going to be talking to him about his book and what on form actually means and how to get in form, if you like. And then after the break, we'll talk about the art of captaincy and what he thinks of Joe Root. I'm with a real analyst today <laughs> and uh, a psychoanalyst. Can, can you just explain, out of interest, Mike, what psychoanalysts actually do? Can I start by telling you what my daughter thought it was when she was two and a half? And I used to take her around, pick her up from her nursery on my bike. And she announced proudly to people that her daddy was a psychoanalyst. <laughs> yes. It's a bit Fixing like a trick, a trick cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, a psychoanalyst is a, is a therapist, a psychotherapist, but it's a, a particular kind of training related directly to Freud. I mean, it's, it's by people who were... You know whose grandparents, as analysts, were analysed by Freud, etc. It's about trying to help. It's trying to understand what's going on in people, including their unconscious side and their resistance and their defences, the things we all put up to deal with, things that are difficult to deal with, and um, sometimes they're kind of distortions and and difficulties, and sometimes they're just ordinary defences and arrangements that we need to have at our disposal so that we're not completely raw and so that we're not overwhelmed by things all the time. And one of the things I say in the book, actually, is about how you have to clear your mind of things uh, and make things more or less automatic so you don't have to think about things all the time or be aware of them all the time, like riding a bicycle, learning to learning to ride a bike. And actually driving, funnily enough, yes. also. I, I've often yeah. felt that... <clears throat> driving a car, when you talk about batting, which I, I wasn't very good at, but had to have a go at, yes. and you too obviously had your ups and downs as a batsman, and I've I talked did. to many other people about batting as well, and it seems as if you want to try and get into this state of mind, mm. which is sort of uh, alert relaxedness or yes. something, yes. a bit like driving a car where you're used to doing it, yes. you're relaxed in the environment of the car mm-hmm. your kind of mind wanders a bit mm-hmm. but when something mm-hmm. happens like a cat running across the road yes, or lights going quickly. red you you're able to react quickly yes that's right and <clears throat> i mean it's slightly more complicated than driving the most driving of a car isn't it i mean driving of a car is meant to be relatively simple and it's meant to be um, it is, i mean i suppose it's more like um, driving a car on a, a long distance um, you hope it's a long distance innings, a long distance rally where you're going to go through difficult terrain and you're going to get up against hard bits of land and so on. 
and uh, you're going to have to use the car in different different uh, speeds. And Funnily enough, I, I, I've equated it with a long drive in a car with three kids in the back. Well, yes, that's a good analogy. You know, because some of the time they're asleep and they're occupied, and other times they're fine. going, you know, I need some sweets, I want something yeah. to eat. When are we there yet? Yes. Can't, and you've got yeah. to sort of try and pacify them at the same time as keeping on with your job. Yes. Yes, I suppose that's like captaincy too, as a matter of fact, especially if you were a bunch a of kids. <laughs> a bunch of kids. Well, there's that. I wasn't actually thinking of that, but yeah. I was thinking of having to get on with your own job while being con- concerned with somebody else's as well. Your new book here is called On Form. What is form? How do you define it? I don't so much define it as try and give examples of it and I start by saying I think we mostly know what form is, you know, both in somebody else, especially in a skill that we know something about, so that, um, I don't know, a person who trains horses knows when a horse is on form and when he isn't on form, and a sailor knows when his boat when his boat's sailing well, uh, and <coughs> ship shape. Uh, so we mostly know it in other people, we can see it, and we mostly know it in ourselves, though we sometimes can get it wrong. You can sometimes talk yourself out of form when actually you're not out of form to start with. Or you can build yourself up in such a way that you think you're in much better form than you are. And as soon as somebody good comes on to bowl, you're lost, say. So I start by that. And I start with an example of being on, by my standards, on good form on a pitch and putt golf course and having a wonderful weekend and being the only person as a guest of this family who delighted me and I enjoyed being with and so on. And then suddenly a whole lot of people arrived, other guests, and I was um, excluded from my little Garden of Eden. And all of a sudden, this was um, almost 50 years ago, all of it, well, it was 50, more than 50 years ago, all of a sudden the balls started shooting off in all directions, <laughs> it's, except straight. So it did make me think, and and I started to get... Also, not only did I start to get jealous and excluded and all of that, but I also started to get self-conscious about it, about being so petty. And all of that made me out of sorts, as we say, and completely out of form, both socially, psychologically within myself, and with my body in terms of playing at this golf. So I think it's we do know what it is. It's a state, is it, really? It's a state, and it's an ongoing state, and it takes some time to realise it. I have a, an example in the book about Ken Barrington having scored one run in four innings in one week, and somebody said, oh, I'm sorry, you're out of form. He said, what do you mean out of form? I've only had nine balls all week. You know. So you have to have... And, and I think he was saying something very sane to himself, because he might have thought, and a less experienced player might have thought, I'm in terrible form. He's not in any sort of form. He's neither in good form nor bad form. He's just got out form. Because he hasn't been there long enough. To know. Mm. And what's the difference between form and confidence, or are they the same? Well, confidence is more simply psychological, whereas form is a more objective state of mind. I mean, I've said that other people can tell whether you're on form or not, probably as well as you can, uh, by watching you. Mm. Whereas confidence is a, a purely psychological thing, um, you know, and, and of course you can be confidence is a very good thing a lot of the time, but you can be overconfident, and you can need a bit of doubt uh, and a bit of questioning, uh, self challenge or challenge from other people uh, to bring you down off a, a level of complacency or 
or, or arrogance or conceit or something like that. Um, so it's not the same as confidence, but confidence enters into it quite a lot. And sometimes I, want, I suppose confidence leads to form. Yes, and lack of confidence very quickly leads to, to not being on form and vice versa. Yeah. So not being mm. on form tends to make you more and more unconfident. In fact, one of the things I write about about form is that a, a really good performer um, at cricket or at, in other walks of life holds on to their their being good enough even when things are going badly for them, including them being out of form. So you, you don't lose touch. I think if, you know, I can remember feeling I was not only rubbish as a batsman, I was rubbish as a person and a personality because of scoring, having lots of low scores or not playing well for a while. And I think a, um, a more resilient person would would remind himself or herself of their capacity, their skill, of their form in the past, of the fact that their their bad performance may not be only a matter of being out of form either. It may be that they've had some really good balls, they've been good enough to get an edge several times, uh, they've been playing against bowlers who are exceptionally good, for example. I suppose, in, in, moving on from that, you would be an admirer then of somebody like Alistair Cook, yes. who never particularly looks like he's in form, <laughs> but... But he gets <laughs> runs and doesn't really care how he looks. Yes, though you you do get a sense of him being on form. It's just not a it's not a glamorous form of form. It's not a Peterson form of form. It's more uh, it's more like a I suppose it's like a bit like a boycott or a Gavaska form of form. You know, very from my t- my day, um, or an Atherton. I do say about Atherton, I do talk about Atherton's innings of 10 hours at Johannesburg when mm. he got 180 to save the test, 175. 185, yes. yes. And um, Shield Berry, who wrote about it and interviewed him afterwards, said he wasn't at all tired. Mm. You know, it was as if he'd been doing something that was just coming easily. So I did give that as an example of not only being in top form, which he was, but being in a sort of zone mm. which can feel like Nothing perturbs you too much. He mm. was sort of serene or tranquil. And I don't think that happens very often, especially combining with being in top form at the same time. Now, of course, the key question here is, how do you get to that state? How do you manage to get on form or you know, yes. ultimately into the zone? Yes. And I guess your book deals with that in a fair amount of detail, but can you sort yes. of summarise it, maybe? Well, it's a bit like saying... How do you form is a little bit like health, and there are lots of ways in which it can go wrong. And so it's difficult to give ten easy tips for either being healthy or for being on form. Uh, but um, one of the things that you absolutely need is you need to practice enough and work at it enough in order to make it so that things come, as we put it, more or less naturally. Um, second nature. It is second nature because it's learnt, but it is it feels natural. Now, having said that, you also need to monitor what's going on, uh, even if you're not having to concentrate too hard about it. I mean, as a car driver, to go back to your example, we still have to notice if we're going too fast around a corner and we'd better slow down a bit, or if we get suddenly um, looking out of the window too much to try and find a street that we're, we're lost in a town and we start not looking at the road and maybe we'd better stop and uh, look at the map properly. 
So uh, practice, hard work, discipline. monitoring, discipline, all in, in essential. But having achieved something of that, to whatever level we are, uh, then it's important to be able to let go of having to control it consciously and be more in the zone. And, and I've encountered that in people other than sportsmen. I think you get it as a in conversation, you get it as an actor, you get it as a musician, you get it as a, as a surgeon even. You mm. probably have to not worry too much or you won't be able to do the job. Yes, and that worry is, is an interesting one because taking the kind of opposite view for a second, people who are not on form or mm. not confident, mm. you've quoted... Hamlet here, we're sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, meaning constrained by, yes. well, fear of failure, I suppose. Fear of failure, not being able to decide what to do in his case, you know, should he murder his uncle, kill his uncle in revenge for his father, or not, was he quite sure? And, you know, there's a famous thing, version of Hamlet as procrastinating or not sure what to do. So he was sickly over by thinking this way, that way, the other way. He couldn't get on and do the job. And I think in a, in a physical activity like playing a sport, that's especially acute. Though the same thing can happen as a psychoanalyst. I can, sometimes I have to let go of being too anxious or trying to work it all out and sit back and just see what's coming my way from the patient and try and, and sometimes let myself say something, even if it's might be felt to be rude or difficult or difficult to take. So I think, um, yes, we can be very easily sickly, made sickly, made not very competent, not very practical. And I suppose translating that into, say, batting, I mean, you give a couple of examples of Mike Gatting being yes. nervous against Malcolm Marshall and worried about a particular ball and therefore getting out LBW, not playing a shot in a quite un uncharacteristic way twice in the test match at Lords and as he said about that you know if that had been a county match he'd have hit both those they were straight balls they didn't deviate mm. but he was looking for the outswing which Malcolm Marshall of course could do and he was tense and a little bit thinking about the mustn't get out tonight and overcautious and thinking it's a big match it's Lords England would rely on him all that stuff and he uh, you know anticipated outswing when there wasn't any. And he'd have played those balls straight back down the wicket if it hadn't been the test match or he hadn't been thinking in that sort of way. It's funny because I, I talked to Mark Ramprakash about this and mm. there's an example of his early career playing against the West Indies where he got lots of 20s and then mm. he got out. Mm. And Often he said, I saw the half volley outside the off stump but I was nervous to, to play a big shot at it in case I edged it. Yes. And Desmond Haynes, who then came to play with, with Mark at, at Middlesex, yeah. used to say, well, my, my view is, if I see a half volley, I'm going to hit it for four. I've got no doubts about it. Yes. Yes. And the, the interesting contrast in yes. their test careers, yes. Haynes, 20 centuries, and yeah. Rampercash, two. Yes. And it, yeah. it, 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 there probably wasn't that much <clears throat> difference yes. in their physical skill. I agree. Maybe a lot of difference in their mental skills. Absolutely. Skill. Harry Sharp, the old Middlesex player and scorer, saying to us that he, Rambrakash was the best player he'd seen coming through batsman coming through Lords since the war, since Compton Edridge. Yeah. And yet he was slightly disappointed in test matches. So the counter to this fear of failure is to try and get into this relaxed state. But it's it's not a particularly easy thing to do. And no. 
you've seen bowlers and batsmen so constrained by yeah. the fear of, of something going wrong. Yes. And yet, actually, it goes wrong for everybody more yes. than it goes right. That's right. That's right. But how can you convince yourself of that? I compare it with going for an interview. And if you're really worried about getting the job and anxious that you won't get the job, but it's something you desperately want, it's going to be much harder for you than if you go there thinking, well, I might be interested in this job, but there'll be other jobs coming up if I don't get it. I'm not even sure I'll take it. And you can go there and have a good time and relax and uh, and say what comes to mind and you feel free. Um, And... So I think if you can, on the one hand, you have to take the fact seriously that you do mind in sport and it matters to you whether you do well or not. Um, uh, And on the other hand, that it doesn't matter all that much. I heard somebody say on the radio today, well, you're not going to be dead if it goes wrong. (laughs) But but you are if you're batting because it is like a death, isn't it? It is like a death. But nevertheless, you have to realise it's not a real death. Mm. You'll have another go. Yeah. Uh, so I think you have to put, you have to talk yourself, as it were, or think yourself, or allow yourself not to think, or and get into a state where it matters, and you're fully concentrated, but it isn't the end of the world. And I think some people can have that feeling that it's the end of the world. I mean, Jonathan Trott, I write about in the book, who who wrote a good book about it, a very good book about his anxiety attacks really on the cricket field against Australia um, and you know he, he he was so anxious he couldn't he was doing everything wrong his head was wrong his legs were wrong he wanted not to be on the field he wanted he wished a pylon would fall on the ground and the game would be called off before it started every time he made his slightest mistake he thought people were mocking him and ridiculing him humiliating him and he knew somewhere that that wasn't true, but he couldn't get out of that state. And it's a terrible state to be in. It's horrible. And and how you get out of it? Well, I've I've made sometimes nudges of the kinds that I'm talking about giving oneself or somebody giving one giving one do help, but sometimes they don't, and one needs a more radical piece of help, as he got from a psychologist, though, and it enabled him to play county cricket again. Though not quite mm. Test cricket again. You also write about fear of success, which I think is an interesting take on the idea of apprehension. And I suppose it relates a little bit to what you're saying there about wanting a job so much that you're almost too uptight about it. And there have been lots of cases where sportsmen have got to almost the pinnacle. Yes. Obviously, Jean van der Velde at the, the yes. Open at Carnoustie, for example, yes. who only had to play a relaxed couple of holes to, yes. to win. Defensive, uh, cautious ones. He, yeah. was the, he, he, he went for the glory shots, and it, where he could have just sort of trundled it down the middle and taken a six and still won. <laughs> he had three-stroke lead. And then, he got in the, and then he got in the brook and, and then, had yeah, a hack at it yeah, and all that, sort of yeah, complete, yeah, consumed yeah. by madness, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Was that hubris? Um, yes, somebody said it was the. I mean, partly because he was French, they said it was the, <laughs> the D'Artagnan yes. approach. You know, the yeah. three musketeers, yeah, yeah. sort of go for glory <laughs> and swing the saber or whatever the foil or whatever it is. Another thing that people can can prefer is like a child doesn't want to come first in class because it exposes him too much. 
Um, I actually say something about you in that regard. Well, yeah. I'm not sure if you think it's true. No, or I'm going to I'm going to counter you yes, actually there because do. you do you you write in in here in this sort of fear of success thing. The young Middlesex fast bowler had a habit of bowling one bad ball and over. And basically, you remonstrated with me and said, "Why can't you bowl six, six. good balls and mm. over? Why does it only have to be four? Yes. And you thought it was a, a sort of mixture of self-satisfaction and lack of ambition or something almost. Something, yes. But almost. actually, I would say, what would you say? Well, I'd say. I mean, you de- you described it here as his response was a hangdog, but also self-satisfied expression. Yeah. I'm afraid I can't bowl six good balls in and over. My take on yes. that is that I didn't think I was that good, and yeah. I thought I was sort of almost flattered by what I'd achieved and I couldn't understand quite how I'd got there, really. So it was a sort of defence mechanism saying, actually, I don't think I am that good, really. But why did you not think you were that good? I, I mean... Because I didn't because... I didn't think I'd done anything particularly special. No, no, but you had potential. You, you couldn't have done that much by then. I mean, you were only about 19, weren't you, or 20? 20, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway... The, uh, I, I, I'm sorry if it was wrong about you. No, I think it's interesting. I, I, doesn't, I'm, I don't find it... Yeah. Um, I'm not offended. No. I just don't, don't necessarily... Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, it's, it's yeah. not, I'm not sure, really. I don't know yeah. what I was thinking. So, sort of going on to the, the, the topic of captaincy, which, obviously, this is, in a way, slightly related to... Um, I mean, you were studying as a psychoanalyst while you were captaining. At the end. At the end, what, what do you think your skills as a captain actually were? I think tactically I was reasonably good, pretty good. Um, I think I was an attacking captain on the whole. I could be defensive, but I, I, I always wanted to find ways of, of trying something new, of getting the batsman surprised, not doing what he wanted me to do or wanted the bowlers to do. Um, I think I was quite good, you may you may not agree with this, but I think I was quite good with younger players uh, with whom I could be frank and sometimes a bit rough, but on the other hand quite interested in what they were up to and what was going on in their minds and their bodies and so on, I mean, what they were doing. I don't think I... I think the lack of skill was that I wasn't quite tough enough with some of the people, especially senior people, when I first started playing Captain in Middlesex. For England, I was... It wasn't in a way it wasn't so difficult, partly because um, I was older than everyone else in the team, or as old as anyone else in the team, and uh, partly because they it was a team full of um, good, really top players, best players in England, hopefully, who were going to be doing trying their damnedest uh, at that in every match they played for England. I always divide captaincy or leadership up into two: one is man management, getting the best out of people, which means helping them be more confident, knowing what they need often enough, uh, being tough with them at times, uh, but also tactics, and cricket's a very tactical game. So I think those two things, um, those are the two things, the two areas. And what I felt was you were very good at involving everybody. You know, you had that uh, status and authority... Mm. As captain, as England captain, as county captain, but you were also prepared to listen to other people. And I remember when I was in my about third game, you came up to me when things weren't going too well and said, Who do you think we should bowl now? And I was a bit taken aback that this England captain who was dipping his toe into county cricket just temporarily for that summer would ask someone who'd only played three county games what to do. But I 
you know, in a cocky kind of way, offered my mm. suggestion, and you mm. took it on board, mm. and that made me feel enormously mm. important mm. And, and as if I belonged. Well, that's a very nice story. Was and it was it a tactic you used well, a lot? Well, I think it was it was something I believed in, so you could call it a tactic. But I think it was also something that came naturally to me. I mean, I was interested in what people said, thought, what people thought and said, and I was curious. I mean, one of the Middlesex players did say to me once, he only asks us when he thinks we're going to give him the answer he wants. But that may have been true with that player more than it was with you or Gat or Mike Smith or Clive Radley or quite a lot of the other players. So I think it was um, it was something I both did more or less spontaneously and something I believed in. Because you never know where a good idea, the next good idea is going to come from. And, and I also thought... I wanted people thinking like captains, not just about their own game. You know, I, I believed in that. Um, I thought it would be it added to the team effort. Of course, it's like an, it's like a, I say so in the book, or I think I do. It's like a family which is full of arguments and debates and discussions, and uh, sometimes even fights or argument, you know, fierce arguments. But on the other hand, it's fully alive, and I thought that that was where you're going to get best a sense of really going for it together and a sense of cohesion and ideas. Now, England are heading off to, to Australia and Joe Root is captain, <coughs> seven mm-hmm. tests under his belt as captain. Mm-hmm. He hardly captained at all before that, hardly yeah. captain for Yorkshire. Obviously, Alistair Cook was the predecessor. He'd hardly captain for, for Essex yes. before that. Do you feel the art of captaincy is in decline or is perhaps undervalued? Well, I think it's shifted partly for the reasons you've given, that people are now contracted centrally if they're good England players, and the better ones, the best ones, get contracted at an early early 20s and probably are contracted for the next 10 or 12 or 15 years. Uh, <clears throat> so then they're hardly... And they're often not available. So they can't be county captains. And um, a lot of the best captains did have experience of captaining in county cricket. Such as you? Such as me. Keith Fletcher, I thought, he, he didn't have much of a chance at it but he was another well I say another he was a very good captain Brian Close railing with captain in county cricket um, a lot of people did uh, Cowdery did uh, uh, Ted Dexter did so I think that's one thing and the second thing is managers coaches numbers of people around the dressing room batting coaches bowling coaches fielding coaches uh, eating coaches rubbing coaches that's what you know there's so many it's like another team that you have to cope with now if they're good and if you get on with them and they help you know they're helpful to you i think that's marvelous you know i'd like to have had it but if there's a problem there it's worse worse than if they're not there at all so i think that the role of the captain becomes a little less um plainy potentiary if that's the right word you know, where you, you, if you're captain of a county side in 1975 or 80, you, you know, you'd, you'd run the whole show, really. You'd, you'd arrange or get someone else to arrange the, who was driving the cars and who was taking who where, and you would organise the nets, probably. The coach might do a bit of that, but you'd organise it as first team. You'd um, more or less pick the side. I mean, there would be a, but but there wouldn't be a coach. I mean, well, there was a coach, but he wouldn't do much with the first team. He did it with the second team players. And that was useful, of course. You've got second team players or under-25 players coming in who knew, you know, quite a lot of what to do and how to go about things. 
you were the sort of big boss and for better and for worse you had to it was down to you whereas now uh yeah, i think there must always be some degree of um overlap between areas of responsibility between the captain and the coach so it does make it a bit more confusing i suppose in a way yes for better and for worse look looking at the the, the challenge facing route yes. now in australia yes how would you assess it? Well, <laughs> a lot hangs on this one person called Stokes, Ben Stokes, who I've got a lot of time for. And I'm very sorry, I'm, I'm sad, saddened by you know his eruption, whatever exactly happened. I think um, uh, he, uh, the, the law should take its course like it would with any other person. That seems to me absolutely essential and presumably will happen. But once it's happened, I don't think the cricket authorities should get high and mighty with him. I think, you know, it isn't the worst thing in the world that he did. He probably started off by... Um, I, haven't seen the, I haven't even seen the YouTube thing, but he probably started off defending somebody and then it, he got sort of some sort of... Um, hyped up state of, of of a violent kind that young men are liable to get into especially men with spirit and force and aggression which is largely proper aggression on the cricket field and elsewhere and you know he was wrong and he, I, I, I guess I, I'm pretty sure and he shouldn't have done it but I don't think we should get too high and mighty about it he's a human being and he's subject to forces which he has to learn to control and um, but you're saying doing, that you think that, that he's a key root, root is uh, hamstrung by his absence. Oh, absolutely. It's two players. You know, he's two players and the best fielder in the team too. And um, <clears throat> makes a huge difference to the makeup of the side, as both of them did when I was captain of England most of the time. And um, But anyway, so apart from that, he's going to Australia. Our bowling may not be as good as it is in England, you know, with medium-fast bowlers who like the ball to move and keep moving. And, you know, we've got the greatest swing bowler in the world, but the ball doesn't always swing in Australia, or not for more than five or six overs with the kookaburra. And we've got good seam bowlers, Broad, him, Wokes probably, Stokes, if he goes. And we haven't got any reserves in the spin department. I mean, we, really, I think... I, I, I mean, I am all in favour of, of an exciting young leg spinner, but to take him as your second spinner to Australia seems to me a huge risk. He should have either gone as a third spinner or gone on with the Alliance and been available if we have an emergency, go and bowl at the people in the nets, in between, stay on afterwards and so on. Um, but they haven't done that. So I think it's a huge risk because when are you going to be able to pick him to play for England on a good batting pitch? I mean, I don't see how you can at the moment. I mean, they must rate his attitude and his maturity very mm. high. So that's... And I'd love to see him succeed. But he's, what is he, 21, 22? Mm. Yeah. And he's hardly bold. Mind you, Len Hutton said that about Tyson Statham when he arrived in Australia, and they said, uh, what's your chances? You know, Do you have any chance against us? So he said, not much. He said, we, we haven't got any bowlers, he said. <laughs> well, I mean... They've got this young lad, Tyson, this young lad. Well, they've hardly bowled. They've hardly bowled, you know. And he went on like that in that vein. And uh, I've got one or two batsmen, but, oh, we haven't got any bowlers. So how can we win the Ashes? You know, that kind of thing. 
<laughs> and they won. So maybe he should try that line. Well, I was going to say, uh, how do you deal with the, the going out to Australia? Because you're obviously going to get yes. barracking. And yeah. they talk, didn't they call you Ayatollah or something? They did. You had a beard. And... I had a big beard and they yeah. called me the Ayatollah. And how actually, do you I thought deal... that was quite funny. Right, OK, so how do you, do, do you do you actually have to sort of almost laugh yes. at the, the, the mocking in yes. Australia to deal with it? I mean, when, you, when we landed there, this was not when I was captain, I was vice-captain to Tony Gregg for the centenary test, and we landed in Perth to play Western Australia and then the centenary test. And um, the people who looked at our baggage were saying to us, uh, ''Ah, how are you doing?'' uh, of course, you've got no chance, and if Liddy don't get you, Tomo will. You know, it was immediately, you've got no chance, you know, and that was the attitude. You bloody poms, you're no good at all. It's the worst team ever, that kind of thing. So you get that, and you have to sort of put that in brackets, set it to one side. I think the, 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 the sledging, I don't know how much there is on the field, but not that much. a bit, not much. The, they can't now, the there's too, the too many people watching and listening. And listening, exactly. Um, anyway, the, the whole hardness and toughness of Australian cricket and the crowds and the grounds and the whole attitude to the game uh, can be intimidating, but it's intimidating if you don't feel good enough about yourself. I think it was like Jonathan Trott said, it was as much about what was going on in his head as what the Australians were doing to him. So I think it's, you know, I think Joe Root seems to have a certain perkiness, which I quite like, you know. He puts people's backs up occasionally, you know, like, like Warner's back up the time he punched, threw a punch at him. Um, and, and he can be a bit sort of, a little bit cocky. But that's no bad thing, you know, a little bit of... I think it's cheek, isn't it? It's cheek. Which it's is quite admirable. Cheek. I think so too. And he'll grin if he plays a Mrs. Early on or yeah. someone drops him, he'll grin. And they think, what the hell do you think you're <laughs> laughing at? <laughs> um, anyway, so, but I, and I think, you know, he's, he, this is sort of, how he's going to deal with things. And I think he's got a confidence. I think he's helped by the fact that he's such a good player, batsman. Uh, I think his approach has been good so far. I mean, it's not perfect, but who is? And I think he's, you know, I think he seems to get on with the job. He seems to ask people's advice, but he takes his own, he makes his own decisions. I have a lot of time for him, but it's hard. Now, Root has the task of obviously trying to retain the ashes ben stokes may or may not be part of that yeah. that side but in a way stokes is quite a similar character to to both of yes, them, who you is. captained so how can root get the best out of stokes first of all i was his first captain for england and so he was raw young completely you know not overawed he wasn't but uh, respectful uh, I think he valued what I did for him too. But I could tell him, I could take him off after three overs because he was bowling, as I put it in the book, medium pace half follies. And he could get angry about that, but he would soon come round and, and, it, would, and it, would, it would sort of provoke him uh, into running at the crease more, which I think he needed to do. And on the other hand, I could, with his batting, I could say to him, you know, go flat out, go for the ball, you know, on this pitch, you know, take your chances. Play with f complete freedom, as at Headingley in 1981. And although he had a lot of luck, and we had a lot of luck to win that match, I think it was the best chance of us winning that he did play like that. I tell you what, I think Stokes might become a better batsman than both Botham, because he's played those innings now where he's really played like a classical batsman number five, 
and he or he, he might be in six but he's been in with four wickets down for 30 or 50 or something and he's played on difficult circumstances in a controlled way and hit the bad balls for four but you know let the ball go and fought it out and I don't think Ian was ever quite he did that at times but I don't think he ever quite became a top-class batsman he always was a hitter I think partly because I think the the energy and yeah. passion that he gave to his bowling, bowling yes. meant you, you didn't score have as quickly. Yeah, yeah, basically. I agree, and that's going to be a problem for Stokes. Well, too. it's not because he's not going to bowl those he's intense bowl spells, is he? No, he isn't. He's a different type of bowler. He doesn't move the ball as much as Ian did, um, and he 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 should be used more as a as a shock bowler. Uh, you know, as a bowler who might do something different and get. You know, make make people jump around a bit. And I mean, Ian was an opening bowler, and, and obviously and his, sometimes first change. Exactly. But he was one of your three Absolutely. pronged attacks. Absolutely. Wasn't Whereas it? he's now number four yeah. as a bowler, yeah. which is a, a luxury. And and he might become a really top batsman. Mm. So I don't think I imagine that that would be a, one of not a big problem in in Root's mind. He might. What are you saying? In a way, it's harder to manage a bowler than it is to manage a batsman then or just the, no, I'm you just think Stokes of them. I didn't find Ian hard to manage and I don't think he'll find Stokes hard to manage probably because he's such a hundred percenter and so good you know and and plays entirely for the team as as Ian both of them did you know they're selfless but ambitious and strong and extremely capable and they've got a bit of strut about them like Liv Richards or Shane Warne and does England's Fortunes hang on whether Stokes plays a part. Then do you well, think? I think it might, frankly, because I think he's key. I think he's a, one of the best batsmen we've got, and a very, very useful bowler and a brilliant slip or gully fielder. So yes, I think he's key. You finish up your book by saying that everybody's worried about form and confidence and and, and achieving things, but in the end, the journey is possibly more interesting than the end product. And or more satisfying than the end product. Possibly, yes, because we always think there's something else we're going for, but actually we're living our lives all the time, and we're having our career as a bowler, a batsman, or as a cricketer, or a psychoanalyst, or whatever you are. And, and, and secondly, I think the point I'm making is not just uh, we'll be happier that way, but we might be more successful too. That if we keep thinking of end products and distant matches, you've got to be completely in the present when you're doing something like sport. You have to receive what comes at you and take the bit between your teeth. And take a few risks. I mean, you finish up by saying, take a journey or two and get lost. Get lost. Just to find out what it's like. And and also not to... That we also learn from failure and from getting lost, metaphorically and literally occasionally, but getting lost and, and, and not being too frightened of that so that we are not too frightened of the new or the unexpected. Um, I think that's an also a great skill. I mean, I can see that better now at my vast age than I could see when I was struggling as a batsman. Well, it's always fascinating listening to Mike Brearley. You just sort of feel a little bit inadequate, actually, listening to his range of knowledge on so many subjects and his sensible intelligence and his clairvoyance as well i think so that's the end of the podcast for this week we're having a break next week and the week after we'll be looking ahead to the ashes so i'll speak to you then thanks for listening
Social Podcast Network.